In early spring of 1945, we saw and heard up high in the sky huge formations of American warplanes flying towards Germany to bomb the hell out of them for weeks. We would shout with joy and satisfaction until some German guard would yell and then shoot at us. We didn't really know for sure, but we felt that this war and our suffering were coming to an end. We had little proof, without phones, radios or newspapers, but our senses told us that the end was finally coming. Some of us noticed that there were fewer and fewer guards watching over us, and there seemed to be a constant exit of fully loaded German trucks leaving the camp, not only with household goods, but with the German families themselves. So here's what happened. I met Gidon Lev, and nothing was ever the same again. Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. sure how far the sound of the Boeing B-17 flying fortress bombers carried as they flew in squadrons and dropped their bombs from the sky a little over three miles overhead. But Dresden was only 60 miles north of Terezin, and Prague only 45 minutes to the south. So Guidon must have heard and seen many low-flying bombers crisscrossing the sky regularly in the weeks before his liberation. According to the U.S. Air Force, the Allies dropped more than 238,000 tons of bombs over Berlin, Hamburg, Munich, Cologne, Leipzig, Essen, and famously Dresden, which was wholly destroyed in February 1945. Dresden in particular became the subject of the inadequacy of the Hague Conventions, which had not been updated before the aerial bombardments of World War II. To Guidon and the survivors of other concentration camps, these bombers and others must have sounded like the roar of a vengeful and victorious god. They could not have known the toll on civilians, but then, living in a flattened, Dali-esque, nightmare netherworld themselves, this knowledge would come much later and become yet another fragment of the shattered pieces of the world as they knew it. What Guidon did not realize was that both the Allies and the Russians were closing in on the Nazis in late 1944 and early 1945. There was a flurry of activity. The Nazis rushed to destroy evidence of their atrocities and redeploy soldiers toward the threats from both directions. The wheels were flying off the Nazi machine. Maps were being redrawn in real time. The Russians were coming. It was also at this time that almost daily transports arrived from the eastern camps, such as Dachau, Buchenwald, Treblinka, and others, with totally emaciated, hungry, sick, half-dead people whom the Germans had evacuated as the Allies and the Red Army advanced. When we saw some of these poor souls, They were housed separately for fear of a typhoid epidemic. It was painful. 
I was afraid to get close enough to ask if any of them had seen my father. One day in May, in the afternoon, as I was laying on my cot, suddenly I heard a very loud shouting coming from the outside. I jumped to the window to see what was happening. My mother shouted at me to get away from there. I saw other people from the buildings around us doing the same. Some were shouting, the Americans are here. Others were shouting, no, it's the Russians. The Russians have come to free us. And yes, it was the Red Army. We ran to the barbed wire fence. Several tried to bring it down. I saw the first Russian tank and another behind it where two officers stood saluting us. I was overwhelmed with excitement. I didn't know what to do with myself. Finally, we were free! The Russians showered us with candy and cigarettes before they continued to Prague, where the Germans were still holding out, damaging that beautiful city. At one point, the Russians caught up with one of the German trucks, took the occupants to a nearby forest, and without any pity, shot them then and there. To me, a ten-year-old, it was all a bit shocking, but by then I had seen so much that I didn't think twice about it. I am numb today when I think about that and the other things that I saw as a child. I don't really know how to describe it. Still, a feeling of elation had taken over my soul that was stronger than the fear of the unknown, even the fear of the likely loss of my dad and the rest of our family. Somehow, I felt that since my mother and I had survived those years in the camp, that we could survive whatever was in store for us. Confronted with the possibility of freedom, my mind raised with questions. Could we leave the camp? Would we see our families? Would we get some food and walk around the camp without German soldiers shouting at us, beating us, even shooting at us? What was freedom, freedom like? like? Would we ever get our things or our homes back? There were very few answers from my mother or anyone else. The Russian unit that was assigned to deal with Terezin Once they realized that this was a German concentration camp for Jews, gradually began to deal with us. The cavalry left their tired horses in the camp to roam in the central square where there was a green lawn and us kids would catch and take hold of them and ride them bareback. That sure was fun. For the first time in four years, we were not hungry. It was like a revelation. Soup was real soup, potatoes were real, and even very small amounts of meat were in our diet. This alone was a reason for rejoicing. We were not allowed to go out of the camp for the first few weeks, and were told there are still a few German units out there that would surely take revenge on us if they caught us. In my naive movie version of things, liberation was immediate and jubilant. But a humanitarian crisis of a magnitude 
never before seen was unfolding in Europe. Millions of victims of the Nazi war machine who had been deported, expelled, and displaced were now herded into displaced person camps run by several refugee organizations. Chief among them, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, which was established in 1943, ahead of the coming tsunami. UNRWA provided billions of dollars in U.S. aid and helped something like 8 million refugees. For Jewish displaced persons, recovery and rehabilitation were a bit more complicated. Even with the help of UNRWA and the American-Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, Jewish refugees quickly found that returning to their former homes was not realistic. They simply weren't wanted. Journalist Michelle Shaben elaborated on what many Jewish survivors encountered after liberation. Quote, Although many survivors returned to their home villages or cities after the war in hopes of finding relatives and recovering their property, they were often met with hostility. There were some Jews in Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, who did move back, but they weren't home. In Poland and Ukraine, many of the survivors who returned home were threatened by their countrymen. Some were physically attacked for daring to return, and others were murdered. Even in places where killing wasn't widespread, the survivors felt endangered. Many of the people who tried to help Jews during the war and its aftermath were considered traitors by the local population and tried to hide their actions. There was no meaningful, lasting return home. End quote. It was, I discovered, rare that survivors returned to their homes and stayed for any length of time. But Gidon and his mother didn't go home to Carlo Vivari right away. There were some stops along the way. Then, when the Red Cross arrived, together with the Russians, they, they set, set up, up a, a number, number of recuperation centers in the surrounding countryside for us children, all of us being undernourished, all of these being set up in abandoned country mansions or castles that the Germans had used for their own officers and their families. So I found myself, together with another 50 or so kids, mostly 10 years old or younger, in this beautiful country house in an area that just looking out from one of the windows, all I could see was gently sloping green hills, trees, and in the far distance, high mountains. Girls and boys were sleeping in separate rooms on cots, about 10 to a room, and we had good food. And I enjoyed the activities, like sports, playing football, or going on hikes in the surrounding forest. This, it turned out, was somewhat of a dangerous activity, because the retreating German army would often throw away their military gear, so they wouldn't be caught by the Russians and shot, which also included hand grenades, which, on contact, would very often explode and kill or injure anyone within 10 meters. We were warned not to stray from the trodden path. It was for the first time that us kids sat together and shared our sorrow with each other. It truly brought us closer together. I recall my experience at this mansion as being very nourishing, both physically and spiritually. However, there was one incident that left me with perturbed and strange feelings. In our room, 
one of the boys, I think his name was Yerji, he was bigger and older than all the rest of us, would from time to time climb out of his bed and go to one of the boys' beds, lay down with him and do things to him which most of us didn't know what it was. We only knew that the small boy would cry and call out for help. And we were all petrified, scared to move, scared to do anything, scared to tell anyone. And each night we wondered who would be the next victim and hoped that Yerji would fall asleep and leave us alone. I was only 10 years old and never spoke about this to anyone. Wait, what? Rewind the tape. Could the Holocaust possibly have been worse? I spoke with Ronnie Sarnat, the writer and director of a documentary called Screaming Silence, which aired on Israeli television in 2015. The film brings to light the long taboo subject of the sexual abuse of children in concentration camps, recuperation centers, and elsewhere during and immediately after the war. Sarnat explained that the war and its attendant chaos was a prime feeding ground for sexual predators. Children who were abused, as Sarnat highlighted in her film, remained silent for decades. As is often the case with rape, sexual abuse, and assault, under any circumstances and during any era, a toxic veil of secrecy and shame burrows into the victims like a biological weapon and can remain in hibernation for a lifetime. Such, too, was the case with children of the Holocaust. After a few months in a shared flat in Prague, Gidon and his mother returned to Carlo Vivari and lived with some friends in the house with the stable and the ya-ya after the war woman, whose name I forget. It must have been so strange to be back. It must have been hard for Gidon's mother to comfort and reassure her son. What could she say? Where was her husband, her mother, her father, half-brother, and grandparents? We lived in a small apartment owned by some old friends from before the war, but it was a totally changed place. I was skinny and underweight, since in Terezin we survived mainly on watery soup and an occasional slice of black bread. I could hardly read or write, since we were not allowed to go to any sort of school while in the camp. Returning to school, though I was older than the other kids, was something I was happy about. Every morning, Every morning I, would I would get up early, kneel near chair, and pray, Liebe Gott, please bring my father back. One day, my mother saw me praying, and she berated me and told me not to be so foolish. When I thought about Doris and her harsh words, I thought about how in The Drowned and the Saved, Primo Levi wrote, quote, We who survived the camps are not true witnesses. We are those who, through prevarication, skill, or luck, never touched bottom. Those who have and who have seen the face of the Gorgon did not return 
or returned wordless. End quote. Doris simply didn't have any words with which to comfort her son. Despite all his prayers, Gidon eventually learned the truth about his father. After a few months of searching, hoping, and praying, we were told by several survivors of the war that my father had collapsed on one of the death marches that the Germans organized as they retreated before the Russian and American armies. He was just too weak from hunger and cold, so they shot him. After that news, I stopped praying to God and never believed in him again. If there is a God, I thought, he is awfully cruel, and I didn't want to believe in such a God. In 1947, Pan American Airlines offered the first ever round-the-world ticket. The Treaty of Paris was signed, and Christian Dior unveiled his new look, upending the world of fashion. Shanghai Shek and his forces massacred 18,000 protesters in Taiwan, and Jackie Robinson became the first African-American baseball player to sign a major league baseball contract. Billie Holiday was arrested for possession of narcotics, and something weird happened in Roswell, New Mexico. Al Capone and Henry Ford died. David Bowie, Mitt Romney, Farrah Fawcett, Elton John, and David Letterman were born. The world, in other words, as it is wont to do, kept spinning madly on. This is the BBC Home Service. Good morning, everybody. Here is the 7 o'clock news for today, Thursday, the 10th of July. The court circular issued from Buckingham Palace last night makes this announcement. It is with the greatest pleasure that the King and Queen announce the betrothal of their dearly beloved daughter, the Princess Elizabeth, to Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten, Royal Navy, son of the late Prince Andrew of Greece and Princess Andrew, Princess Alice of Battenberg. In Carlo Vivari, Peter Wolfgang Lowe, Guidon, had been liberated from a Nazi concentration camp for a scant two years. He was 12 years old. After four years of abuse and malnutrition, Guidon was starting to fill out again. In a photo taken at the time, he had jug ears and wore an ill-fitting suit. By then, he knew his father was not coming back, and his mother, Doris, had even begun dating again. In particular, she was dating a man named Julius Cohn, Yus for short. Yus became my stepfather and was part of my life for many years. He was an accountant by profession and lived in Kaluivari with his wife and son, who was two years older than I was. Our two families were friends. And before the war and the Nazi takeover, they used to get together from time to time and go out dancing or the theater. Yus was also an avid stamp collector and had thousands of stamps, some very valuable ones. As all the Jews of Czechoslovakia were transported to concentration camps, some through Terezin and some directly to Auschwitz, Yus 
together with his wife and beloved son, found himself in front of the selection table with an SS officer deciding who goes to the left, the guest chamber, and who goes to the right, meaning stays alive as long as he can work and survive the inhumane conditions. When it came to Yusuf's turn, he was sent to the right, but his wife and son to the left. Suddenly Yusuf broke out of the lineup and burst forward to try and retrieve his dear son. The Germans reacted immediately by almost beating Yusuf to death with their rifle butts, and then, bleeding and injured, threw him back into the group that would live, at least for a while, while his son remained with his mother to be sent to the guest chamber. One would think that that incident would have broken this man, but it didn't. Somehow, he managed to survive not only this, but another two firing squad shootings, which we never found out how, where, or when, because he refused to talk about it to us. Others that had been with him in Buchenwald and Birkenau, Auschwitz, told my mother how much he had suffered and only his will to stay alive and hope that perhaps to see his family again made the difference. Yus, after the war, did return to Karlovy Vary and realizing that his family would not, he met my mother, whom he had known from before the war, and a warm relationship developed between them. I actually liked him, he treated me well, He taught me things about stamp collecting and taught me how to fix, repair and renew used bicycles, which we then sold. This was a good little business after the war since there was a shortage of everything. He would also take me on bi-weekly trips to the country to fetch fresh butter and milk from the farmers. Once I remember on a pretty steep hill, the chain came off my bicycle. It must have been too loose, and I almost broke my arm and legs, but managed somehow to end up in a bush on the side of this country road, just with a couple of scratches. It was scary, and we agreed not to tell my mother, because she would have prohibited my going with use into the country, something I really enjoyed doing. Though Gidon welcomed use in his life, he was lonely and aimless. He needed to make friends, to belong. He joined a Jewish youth group, and it changed the direction of the rest of his life. In America and Europe, outdoorsy, lean-to building, campfire sing-along scouting groups were a way to instill values in kids and to teach them skills that they might not ever need, but would earn them badges and create a strong sense of bondedness. Jewish youth groups at the time had a greater goal in mind, Zionism. Zionism is a word that, even for Jews, is a bit complex. But in general, it refers to the desire of the Jewish people to live in their ancestral homeland, from which they had been forcibly exiled, most notably by the Romans in the year 70 in the Common Era. Sold into slavery and otherwise forced out of what today we call Israel, the idea of returning to the land has been a central part of the Jewish experience for millennia. After the Holocaust, though, Zionism became utterly imperative to many. 
Europe had just demonstrated to the Jews that they were more than unwanted. They were the object of deep hatred and genocide. A slow trickle of early Zionists had immigrated to Israel for more than four decades before the Second World War. Afterward, thousands of Jews who survived the Holocaust sought to live in Israel. Jewish Zionist youth groups became an important mechanism, not just to energize the Zionist dream, but also to prepare youth for a very different life there. In my youth group, Dror Echalut Hatzair, the young pioneers, we learned about Israel and about how kibbutzim were established. We even learned in summer camp how, how to, to use, use a stick, stick for self-defense, because at that time, Israel had very few guns, so they wanted to teach us how to use a stick as a weapon. We began to learn Krav Maga using broomsticks we cut in half. Our counselor told us that we must prepare ourselves for two tasks. One, to make our way to Israel as soon as possible. The country really needed us. And second, that we must learn to fight, to defend ourselves, even without real arms. Jewish youth groups symbolized a cultural earthquake in Jewish life in the 1920s. Heretofore, activities for Jewish youths had been almost exclusively religious in nature. Now, there was a modern alternative to yeshiva, or Jewish religious school training, akin to Sunday school for Christians. Whether Doris allowed Gidon to become an active member of a Zionist youth group as a way to keep him occupied while she tried to put her life back together, or whether she championed Zionism as an idea, Gidon did not know, although the former seems most likely. For Gidon, this was, perhaps, one of the most pivotal experiences in his life. On outings and hikes and in camps on mountains, the Jewish Zionist youth movement spoke to the young campers about their heritage, their values, their traditions, and, crucially, about living an agricultural kibbutz life in mandatory Palestine, which was, they understood, in the middle of a pitched civil war. Mandatory Palestine, sometimes referred to as the British Mandate, had been established by the League of Nations at the end of the First World War as a result of the defeat of the Ottoman Empire, which conceded the territories of Palestine and Transjordan to the British administration. The British promised to provide the Jews with a national home while they administrated the land. This was called the Balfour Agreement. But Jewish pioneers arriving and settling down had another agenda, to ultimately wrest Palestine from the British. They accomplished this by creating a sort of sub-government and sub-organizations to suit their own needs. A guerrilla war broke out, with Jewish militia groups fighting the British. The British mandate was not going so well, to put it lightly. When the partition of Israel-Palestine was announced by the United Nations in 1947, Britain was more than happy to wash its hands, not only of the Jewish insurgency, but also of the untenable situation between Jews and Arabs that had already been simmering and erupting for decades. The youth groups kept their members apprised. 
In the youth group, we talked about the UN special committee that was deliberating about the proposed partition plan that was to divide the territory under the British mandate into two states, a Jewish state, Israel, and an Arab state. A great deal of the proposed borders comprising the Jewish state were based on the centers of the Jewish populations, and especially on those the existing kibbutzim, and Moshavim, the collective communities and farms. To me, it all sounded pretty precarious and frightening, even though I hardly knew or understood at the time what it really all meant. Were we ever going to have our own country? And how large or small would it be? On Parents' Day, we prepared a little presentation, and the shaliach, emissary, who had been sent from Israel to lead us and to train us, taught us a song about Emek Israel, the Jezreel Valley. And to this day, I remember the song. When I sang it, of course, I had no idea what I was singing about or what the words meant. It is all about the Jezreel Valley and the wonderful country and being guardians of the country. Gidon may not have understood the Hebrew words correctly at the time, but he got the gist. The Jezreel Valley was a place of spiritual and emotional importance in Israel, and he was inculcated with a longing for it. I went to the winter camp in Czechoslovakia in 1947. It was bitterly cold, with snow everywhere my eyes could see. It was so beautiful there, nothing but snow-covered hills and thick pine forests all around us. I was 12 years old, and we spent two weeks in the highest mountains in Bohemia, on the Czech-Polish border. Camp was fun because we were divided into groups of girls and boys of different ages, and each group was located in a special building, very far apart from each other. There was a central lodge where every morning we would come for breakfast and where all the cultural and other activities took place. In the morning, we would get up, wash our faces, get on skis, and ski for 10 or 15 minutes to the lodge. We had a young woman who was our madricha, our counselor, and I remember falling in love with her. Of course, she didn't take it seriously, but I did. She was from Israel, from Kibbutz Ganigar, which still exists in the Jezreel Valley, very close to Afula and Nazareth. I swore to myself that I would find her one day in Israel. Yakumo 
Doris, however, had no intention of immigrating to Israel, a place that to her must have seemed like a wilderness in the middle of a war. She wanted to go to America. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. You can learn more about Gidon Lev at www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Gidon on TikTok. Special thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Macht and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Kroon and Adi Goldstein. Toda Raba Eliran for being the voice of young Gidon. Special thanks also to Michelle Shaven 